To the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. My name is Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here covering Saga, Volume 2 by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples. This is an exciting episode for me. Yes, it is. Because I have written my notes for this and had them sitting waiting for like four or five months which means I have not been able to move on to trade paperback number three (laughs) for four or five months. Oh, the sacrifices you make for the sake of this podcast. uh, It's rough because so far, we're early into it, but so far this has been my favorite of the Brian K. Vaughn series that I've read. Really? So you would put this above Why the Last Man? It's tough to make that claim i read why the last man when it first came out and i haven't reread it and i really enjoy paper girls as well but i think i think i'm gonna end up liking this one better than all of them it's a fantastic book it is absolutely should we talk about our spoiler policy yes yes so Liz has read through all of the sagas to current. Yes. I have not read anything past volume two, episode 12, or comic book number 12, of the saga series. So we will not spoil anything that happens past trade paperback volume two. Because we want to hear Chad make predictions. They're fun. They're crazy. They're usually wrong. (laughs) Well, let's get into chapter seven. Let's do it. We start with a scene from Marco's childhood. His first memory is his parents taking him to an old battlefield and magically showing him the horrors of the battle in order to instill hatred in him of the wings. Back on the ship, there's good news about Isabel. It turns out that she wasn't destroyed. She was just banished to the nearest planetoid. Marco heads down to retrieve her, and his mother follows. Alana gets to meet her new father-in-law in a towel. When their conversation goes southward, she has the ship restrain him. Marco and his mother search the planetoid for Isabel. Instead, they find a giant with a big club. <laughs> Bar escapes his restraints by sharing a secret. He has less than a month to live. He spells Alana to sleep. So there's so much that happens in that chapter. I had a hard time even putting it together where there's a lot thrown at us. There there really is. There's a lot in that chapter. And it opens up, in my opinion, with Fiona Staples at her best. That is my first note as well. This wow. opening, the the opening art is amazing. We've got this picture of Marco as a child standing next to his childhood pet. He's blowing a dandelion puff. It's absolutely adorable, this this breathtakingly innocent picture. And on the left side is a, a picture um, that's also on the cover of Marco covered in blood, just, just gleefully killing an opponent. And it's such a stark contrast. It's beautifully done. One of the things that impresses me about the art 
is the way that she draws the characters. It's a a common criticism of comic book artists that a lot of the characters will sometimes look very similar. They mm-hmm. they they tend to have a, a similar facial structure or or something like that. So you have a lot of characters that look alike. It's always impressive to me when comic book artists can can get out of that and really make all the characters distinct. I think Fiona Staples takes it to a different level here because she is not only able to draw the characters and make them distinct and easily recognizable, but also the way that she is able to draw characters that have a family resemblance but still make them distinct and then to also draw them at different ages, you know, in a way where you can clearly tell that these people are related. You can clearly see their age. It's it's really impressive. Not just that, but the the nuanced emotions that are are shown in every single frame is really stunning. This book is just just gets inside of your heart from the get go, and the the art is such a big part of that. I love this. So this scene with Marco and his parents. I love that the it's not translated. So they're speaking in yep. th- their language, mm-hmm. the language of Wreath. There's no English, there's no subtitles or anything like that. And it makes it feel just very immersive. They're speaking Mooney. They're speaking Mooney. But over it, we've got the narrator, of course, kind of explaining a little bit about what what is happening. His parents are taking him. Uh, at this point, at the point of Marco's childhood, the war has moved off of the, the the core planets that started it out into the galaxies. And most people who live on those planets don't even really think about it that much. It doesn't affect their day-to-day lives. But Marco's family is not just any family. And they've they keep those fires burning. And this is a huge theme in the book uh, about how the past follows us if we don't let it die. The other note I have is that Marco's mom is a little type A. little bit. I mean, she's the first one to draw a knife. Absolutely. And every every part of this book that you see her, she's yelling at somebody, swinging an axe. <laughs> like she is. That's type A or just violent <laughs> as maybe, a person. Yeah, I mean, maybe. But I love the scene where Alana meets Marco's parents. It is the, in my it's opinion, a great scene. It is the the best meet the in-laws scene in, in fiction, in any medium. Uh, it's my favorite right there. <laughs> it's, it's good. Uh, just Marco's parents' faces when he introduces her as his <laughs> wife is amazing. And then there's so much that happens in just a few short frames. You know, Marco throwing on the crash helmet and saying, well, I'm going to go get get our babysitter and his mother saying you don't even know how to use that thing and his face when he looks at her and says you have no idea what i know and it's like oh gosh just just his expression when he says that is amazing and then him leaving his mother leaving and alana saying cool so glad i get to do this in a towel yeah (laughs) (laughs) because she of course she has just gotten out of the shower and she's standing there in a Standing there in a, a towel. wet towel for the whole interaction. 
So there's there's a lot to unpack just in these what's revealed about Marco's relationship with his parents in two pages. You can you can tell how much conflict and emotion is packed into those frames. You know, it's really impressive. Just there's so much sort of it lays so much context without necessarily telling you a whole lot. You can tell that there's, you know, this disapproval. You can see all these things without having to have all the history of why. You don't need to know the blow-by-blow details of how they got here. And something that gets slowly revealed in these couple of issues, which, which has been stated outright before, but the depth of the stigma that Marco and Elena's relationship is carrying is really revealed in this. You know, we start off in Marco and Elena's already mature relationship there, you know, it's the birth of their first child. So for us, this is like, okay, this is a a couple, this is a family, this is normal. And then, you know, we know from other characters' reactions that, oh, this is an abomination, blah, blah, blah. But you really start to realize when you see, you know, his family's reaction, people who are close to them yeah. reacting, exactly how deep this stigma is. It's always interesting to me in any kind of storytelling, the power of the first information that you receive. Yes. You know, and how it sets what is normal, who is right who is good, and it cements a certain bias in you that is really difficult to overcome. So Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples have to do a lot of work here, as you said, to let you know just how, quote, wrong this is in their overall society. But it's such a powerful storytelling tool if you can do that, yeah. and if you can, for me, what comes out as as the major message of this book is the futility of war, the wrongness of war. And you take this conflict that to us seems so silly. It's people with wings versus people with horns, you know, magic versus technology. And, you know, it's this kind of out there world building, but it says something very real about just the futility of conflict. Agreed. And I think the going back to your statement about um, the child and the taboo and the wrongness of it and and how how this cements in you or helps you to understand what that's like. To me, it all comes down to one phrase issued by Marco's father, who is a grandfather meeting his granddaughter for the first time. And he says, is it normal? That was my last note. Oh, was Over it? <laughs> there. Our brains are so in sync tonight. I Simpatico. love it. Yeah, I mean, and I love Alana's reaction to that statement. Yeah. Um, she's like, um, she's fucking perfect. You know, and that that point is when she has the tree, her her spaceship tree that she has some kind of mental symbiotic relationship with, take Bar captive. So in the meantime, Marco and his mother have beamed down to the planet and they're having a little little family spat. So one of the things that I noted is that Marco seems quite disturbed that his mom followed along, not because she followed along, but because she left Alana alone with Marco's dad. 
it's interesting to me because we haven't seen any reason to this point to think or to understand why he would be concerned about her being left alone with his father. She is the one who seems to be the more hot-headed and violent one. I would think he would be way more concerned if she was left alone with his mother. I don't know. It could just be that thing that that uh, dads do. They mellow out as they get older, right? So we see Barr at, in, at, at the end of his life when he knows that he's dying. And uh, we see him as being the more mellow and relaxed, but we don't know what he was really like it, in Marco's childhood. True. It could also be he kind of looks like Joe Rogan, uh, the younger version of, of Barr. It could also just be the awkward nature of meeting their parents for the first time, you know? Right. Having said that, I think I would rather be surrounded by one of your, <laughs> be left alone with one of your parents, you know, for the first time than <laughs> both of your parents <laughs> for the first time. So Marco says the real problem here, again, going back to the baby, the real problem is Hazel. But before she gets a chance to explain, we get interrupted by Balzac the Triclops. <laughs> I I love Marco's reaction when this so this giant yes comes up and he and the most striking thing about him is his two hundred pound sack of testicles. <laughs> <laughs> He's got an eighteen inch penis, <laughs> and yet somehow, <laughs> and yet somehow, it's such a tiny little thing. What strikes me most about this book is the balance between there's so many good elements. And they're all so well balanced. So you've got like this, this rich family dynamic, these interesting characters, you know, Marco and his mom land and right away they start bickering about the family sword that Marco broke and she sold his childhood home and he's disappointed. And uh, a freelancer came by the house and, and was pestering us and, and right into this very believable mother son dynamic. And um, but then you've also got this really interesting world building stuff. But like the characters are almost so interesting that you forget about the interesting world building. And then there's, you know, a giant penis or whatever. And then you, uh, underneath of it all, you've got this really powerful um, thematic stuff going on in the undercurrent. And it just it just all is like comes together in this this beautiful mixture. But I, I love it. I mean, in the dialogue between. Marco and his mother here is so powerful as well, you know, and they start talking about making mistakes and, and his mom kind of looks at him and says, you know, we all make mistakes. <laughs> you just have to know when it's time to move on. And Marco's like, fuck you, basically, yeah. you know, and so we get to see Alana standing up to his dad and Marco standing up to his mother and just both showing their loyalty to this relationship which we find out later has not been going on very long. No, yeah. That's that's one of the most interesting things about this volume overall, but that's for the next comic, so we'll talk more right. about that then. Going back to your statement about the balance and the mixture of all these elements, I think an interesting thing as well 
is a common combination of science and technology mm-hmm. versus magic. Mm-hmm. But also that a lot of, from a world building perspective, a number of the things that we see are things that we might recognize from our world. Like the butler who is just a talking alligator, mm-hmm. you know? A lot of the characters are anthropomorphized animals from our mm-hmm. real world. But then we also have things that are wholly unlike mm-hmm. anything we've ever seen before, including this enormous triclops monster. Uh, I mean, he's got 17 pounds of gonorrhea. <laughs> But there are all these other elements of things that just, you know, flat out don't add up to our real world. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is interesting to look at kind of the balance of all those elements. Well, let's talk about Barr and Alana's relationship at the end of this chapter. So she has him tied up. He tells her that he knows a spell that will get him released. In the last volume, we saw Marco escaping from a, a similar kind of entanglement using a spell that required a secret, needed uh, her to tell a secret. And so she says, well, I know that spells need ingredients and, you know, you need a secret. And he tells her one and he says, I have less than a month to live. And just the look on his face when he does that is is amazing. And then right away he jumps up and, and uh, enchants her to sleep and is grabbing the baby. And we don't know what he's going to do at this point. And I was really glad that we have the that I was reading a trade paperback so I could just keep going. But yeah, um, but yeah, it's a powerful scene. Right before that, so uh, entering into that scene, we kind of come out of it, and there's a um, commentary by Hazel, who is the narrator here, mm-hmm. and she says, "Still, for all the royal automatons and deranged mercenaries out there, only one thing can really destroy a family." And we all know what that is, right? But the frame that that lands in is Alana biting into a mango with mango juice running down her chin, naked, wrapped in a towel. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me from the greater context that what Hazel's trying to say is that it's secrets that can destroy a family. Mm-hmm. But there are some vague, like, am I wrong to think that there are some very subtle sexual undertones in this chapter? Is it just, is it just me? You're shaking your head. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I follow you. So it's just me then. <laughs> I mean, you see sexual undertones wherever you want to, babe. I mean. <laughs> well, I tend to think it's just me. Listen, I see 200 pounds of testicles and I got <laughs> to take them with me wherever I go. So chapter eight. Chapter eight starts with a flashback as well. After trying to get her unenthusiastic co-worker to read her favorite book, Alana meets Marco for the first time and bashes in his face. In the present, Marco and his mother discuss his life choices and they interview Fard the Giant. They learn that the planet they are on is actually an egg and it's about to crack. 
In the spaceship, Alana wakes up to a surprise from her father-in-law, and the Will's agent is visited by Marco's ex. The plot thickens. So as we hinted in our last chapter that we discussed, we find out here that this relationship really is not, it's more recent than we might have thought. I mean, obviously it's it's been going on for at least <laughs> However the long gestation, the gestation <laughs> period is. <laughs> for a wing, <laughs> for one of those winged kids. So at least nine-ish months. But, <laughs> but what I'm saying is she got pregnant right away. <laughs> She was wearing the same outfit, <laughs> let's just say. This is all a giant walk of shame. <laughs> the most elaborate walk of shame you've ever seen. That's <laughs> so funny. That's true. So we open up the chapter, though, with a little excerpt from a nighttime this book. smoke. A nighttime smoke. And the excerpts from this are hilarious. <laughs> because taken out of context, they're just, it's a book about a rock monster and a and a quarry miner's daughter. And it's just the, the, it doesn't seem to be about anything. And I love this scene with Alana and her coworker, McHenry, such a Karen. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, and most of us have probably been there where we we finish a book and we're like, oh my God, you know, that feeling of like, this is the best book I've ever read. And then you try to explain it to someone who doesn't get books, you know, and, yeah. and McHenry is just kind of like, what? It's the whole reason this podcast exists. It is. <laughs> it's in these frames. It's right there. And when Alana says, I'm so jealous that you get to experience it for the first time. And uh, we've all felt that way, but McHenry is like, great. And as she da- as, as Alana dashes off this, th- another coworker of theirs who happens to be like a weird octopus looking thing just comes over and says, I told you working with her is the fucking worst. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Liz. Hey, Chad. Do you have old night in a can? Yes, I do. Why don't you crack a window then? <laughs> so, yeah, the coworker that you're talking about is this sassy brain octopus in this standing aquarium. And that's just these really neat little world-building things that happen that it's not just like, okay, there's... There's wings and there's horns, and we're just going to make all the characters one of these. Then you have some random weird brain octopus floating around, but like completely as part of the background, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. A one-line character. So it's just, I don't know, the, it's so thoughtfully placed, those little touches. I just want to be rich and powerful enough to have a human-sized aquarium tube for alien life in my office. Is that too much to ask? I mean, I don't know. The alien, brain alien, he's kind of a dick. I don't know if you want to go through all the trouble. Looking at this, Mm -hmm. after just having watched episode four, season two of the OA, it's it's a little bit of a mind fuck. It is, yeah. That is the weirdest episode of television I've ever seen. Ever 
scene, but that's for another that's podcast. Definitely for the other podcast. Not the other podcast. No. Another podcast. Another podcast. So then we get to see the meet cute. <laughs> where Alana meets Marco for the first time, and she meets him because he's sitting in his cell, and he's like just randomly yelling uh peace peaceful slogans i guess he's become a conscientious objector and uh alana just beats his face in i said no talking butt stroke to the face (laughs) and i love i just love hazel's voice as the narrator it really makes the story it absolutely does and instead of having just this kind of bland back ground voice of a narrator she really comes across as a character you know she's it's this voice is like wry and funny and it also gives us a glimpse of the future because she's referring to the end of the story already and it's mm-hmm. it's it reminds me of um what you know what patrick rothfuss does in the king killer chronicles with with having um the beginning of the story being this person kind of telling a flashback. So you already know there's there's an ending that's hinted at. And that's such a powerful tool when it's done well, and it's Absolutely. done well here. It sets the tone, and it casts a certain light on everything else that happens. Mm-hmm. So Alana wakes up after she's been magically ensorcelled to sleep by her father-in-law, who may or may not have nefarious plans for her daughter but she wakes up and her daughter is her baby is safe with her and she's got some sweet new threads and it turns out that uh, bar is a armorer and he's made her an awesome outfit by spinning roses that scene was just pretty cool lululemon already has the patent on this all right But this frame, it's just such a, it's its a neat, like, classic fantasy image, you know? He's spinning these roses into clothing, and he's telling her that, that he's, yes, he's dying, and this is something he wants to finish before he dies. He wants to make, you know, new clothes for his family. What I was thinking was, did Barr put Alana to bed naked? Well, she was wearing a towel, I guess. Now she's in bed naked. Well, I guess a towel could come off when you were in bed. I, I, I really think you're looking for like sexual undertones that aren't there, babe. Good. That makes me feel better. <laughs> I love how quickly Alana goes from treating Bar like an enemy to fiercely protecting him. So... She's really, really wants to be accepted by this family. And when she comes down and Barr isn't, you know, insulting her daughter or criticizing her, he's made her these clothes as a peace offering. And he, but he tells her, you know, I, I know that I, I'm going to be dying soon. Nobody else in the family knows. And she's like, well, screw that. We're going to we're going to find a way to to save you. And kind of in contrast, down on the planet, we have Marco and his mom still really arguing And really the central issue that they have is, for whatever reason, Marco has become a pacifist. And obviously he wasn't raised as a pacifist. We saw that in the very first frame of this volume. Mm -mm. Mom ain't raised no hippie. Right? He's become a hippie. And they bring up Gwendolyn. They do, yes. 
Gwendolyn um, Marco's ex, who once owned the the rings, the translator rings that Marco and Alana use. And I just I love this quote, and I I think it's really important in this chapter. It says, and I think this is something that Hazel says uh, in one of the the kind of overlays. She says. Some people are haunted by their pasts, but how can you be haunted by something that never really dies? And this is so deep. It, I think it applies to the war as well. You know, we start off with Marco being shown the worst moment in his planet's history. And then we end this chapter here with him being hunted down by his ex. And I, I just think that really speaks to the theme of needing to let go of the past and the pain and consequences that happen when you don't. Well, yeah, absolutely, when you're not able to. And this chapter ends with us, as you said, meeting Gwendolyn. And what's interesting is that she's calling on behalf of Wreath High Command, asking why her ex-fiancé has yet to be assassinated. Mm-hmm. This is now the second woman we've met from Wreath. And they're all violent as fuck. I'm thinking perhaps Marco was right to break it off. <laughs> hey, we don't know that Gwendolyn had tried to have him killed before he broke up with her. I don't think she could be having a personally rational response. How is that being dumped? <laughs> you dump me, I'll destroy your whole goddamn family. Is that what we're calling rational nowadays? I mean, I guess not. <laughs> I'm just saying, don't judge too harshly. <laughs> I think we all bring our own personal biases <laughs> into these stories. We might. You're like, I don't see a problem with Gwendolyn. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't get the problem. And I'm like, clearly she wants to fuck everybody. <laughs> So much self-discovery. Right. You, th you thought this was about a comic book. <laughs> Chapter 9. Chapter 9. The Will is dreaming about revenge against Mama's son. He wakes up with Marco's ex-fiance Gwendolyn standing over him. She wants him to continue hunting down Marco and Alana, and she throws in the chance to find Prince Robot IV to sweeten the deal. The will is kind of a hot mess, so Gwendolyn also has to help him secure the release of Slave Girl. They mount a badass rescue. As they fly off into the sunset, Slave Girl tells them that she can hear Marco and Alana's rings and that they aren't far away. Mm. Oh, so, snap. So this chapter opens with a horrific example of toxic masculinity. Yeah. I had to actually look at this a few times to pick up on it. But if you look at the headless dudes in the background, mm -hmm. they talk through their penises and each of their weapons are giant penises. We put a penis on your penis. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It's a little heavy-handed. <laughs> yeah, sextillion in general and mama son and the whole... But, so here's what I find interesting about this. And we're skipping ahead a wee bit. 
but the idea of sextillion encompassing the very, the most exotic, depraved, um, over-the-top experiences you can have in this galaxy. It's crazy. Okay. It's like going to, like, I don't know, like Columbia, Maryland. But but all those wild people. But so that's what sextillion is is about, okay? And then you have in the in the process of securing the release of Slave Girl, Gwendolyn calls Mama Son and tells her that uh, they that she, she's from Wreath High Command and that she's had a report that a a child from Wreath has had her horns sawed off and has been sold you know, to the sex market. And, you know, the idea that a child was kidnapped and is being sold into the sex trade, obviously, doesn't bother Mama Son. But the idea that some of her landfallian customers might find out that they could have accidentally stuck it to a filthy Mooney, that is enough to get her to release this girl. Well, she doesn't really intend to release her, we find out, but at least to turn off her tracker so that, like, that's enough to stop her. And that just, again, it highlights the taboo nature of Elena and Marco's relationship. Yeah. Like, that this is the most repulsive taboo thing in the universe at this point. Well, and another thing that we've discussed in other books that we've covered, but just the incredibly arbitrary nature of what is and is not taboo within mm-hmm. society. Mm-hmm. That, it, it, I mean, as you've illustrated that it's okay to have sex with a child as long as it's not one of those. Right. I mean, this takes the stuff we've seen in, you know, in Stormlight Archive and and, and makes it look like, you know, makes it look like Gandhi next to a pedophile. Mm-hmm. But let's back up to the beginning. So the Will is having this revenge dream where he attacks Mama's son and rescues Slave Girl in the company of the stalk. And I just love their relationship, even though it's all in his head in his head, and kind of been shown to us in flashbacks. We, we get that they have a history. But it's so, like, weird and fascinating. And it's so cool, not in just, like, the fact that that she is a giant half woman half spider like which is just it's just bizarre and and creepy and awesome but also just in their personalities and that you've got these two like like lone assassins who kind of against the odds found each other and then had a falling out but then before they could make it work you know she gets killed and it's there's just so much good stuff going on here in in every single little thread line. It's it's pretty damn impressive. So we come out of the dream and we have Gwendolyn who has found the will and lion cat and says damn it I contracted you to do a job. Get up off your lazy ass and do this damn job. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. She is committed to killing her ex-boyfriend. Yes, she is. I mean, that's one of the things you don't want to half-ass, <laughs> right? <laughs> All or nothing, in or out. <laughs> one thing that stuck out to me in this little scene is 
So Gwendolyn has this translation pendant. It's part of a set. The obviously she kind of is, talks about how, you know, it was part of a set, and we know that those are the rings that Alana and Marco have. But what I thought was interesting is that the will says to her, "Oh, you speak language," and I just thought like the fact that the Landfallens or the Landfallians call their language language. language. <laughs> Freaking arrogant are these people, you know? Um, It's crazy. And I also just love Lion Cat here. You know, Lion Cat in every frame steals the show. Absolutely. The scenery. Absolutely. And so the heist is awesome. I love the heist that finally happens um, with uh, Gwen, Lion Cat, and the Will as they rescue Slave Girl. Mama Sun releases Slave Girl. But she sends her with a bunch of goons because she figures that it's probably the will behind it. And in this conflict, when they, before they release or rescue Slave Girl, we we get to find out that one of the will's weapons is a laser lance. That is just one of the coolest scenes. So we get to see the will in action. Yeah. And he stands and he's confronting these goons and they're like, they say something to the to the extent of, what are you gonna you gonna stab us with your faggy laser sword? <laughs> and he's standing like, so, you know Ooh, you freelancers are so scary. You gonna kill us all with your faggy laser sword? And he's standing far away. Yeah. You know, and uh the will just like pulls out his his uh what they think is a sword and it shoots, you know, all the way across and stabs him. And he just goes, ain't a sword. (laughs) It's a lance. And he splits a motherfucker in two. He does. Absolutely. Now they're, uh, they're shooting at him Mm -hmm. and you, you see this cape that the will has been wearing. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know, but I think this is the first reveal. I don't remember it in the last book, but you find out that the, the cape, the cloak he's wearing is bulletproof. Yep. So he can just kind of throw it around himself and he charges at the guys. That lands, though. It's bad. It's badass. It is bad donkey right there. And the lion cat jumps into action and you realize that, you know, lion cat looks a lot like a domestic cat. Mm-hmm. I mean, some strange features, but looks like a domestic cat, bigger than a domestic cat. But you realize in this scene just how much bigger than a domestic cat. Right. And how much of a badass Lion Cat is as well. Yeah, Lion Cat takes a dude out. Yeah, pretty harsh. And eats his goddamn face. Mm-hmm. So overall, totally badass heist. Pretty badass. I like the part, too, where Gwen um, shoots the third guy with lightning. She says, I learned this trick from my ex. And the will comes over after it's all done. And she says, I've never killed anyone before. And he looks down and says, you still haven't. But then he hands her a gun and, or, or something. Yeah, hands yeah. her a weapon and yep. says, now you need to finish it. And I, I thought that was kind of badass. Well, what's interesting to me, too, is that so, you know, she seems very hesitant for all the reasons you said. I've never killed somebody. Uh, but when he hands her that gun and she turns and com- finishes the job, she does it with a look of glee on mm-hmm. her face. She's not shy mm-hmm. about killing a dude. From here, we go to the scene where they're back on the Will's ship. 
and they're kind of going back and forth about what they're going to do when Slave Girl, by the way, terrible name. Can we can we name this child something other than Slave Girl? But anyway. Just wait. So they're going back and forth talking about what they're going to do. And Slave Girl comes up and says, excuse me, but your necklace sounds sad. And that's where we realize that this girl is not just some ordinary child. She has some sort of some sort of powers. And we've learned about her in kind of a throwaway comment that she is from a comet, a comet mm-hmm. called Fang. And Gwen makes a comment about those comet people are weird. They're always talking to themselves. Hmm. Maybe not to themselves. Who knows? Either way, she's, she tells them that she can hear that her necklace's friends are not too far off. That's right. The other thing we learned, I forgot to, to bring this up, is when Gwendolyn casts the, um, the lightning that kills the guy, the will actually chastises her for it. And he says, that's stupid. Weather casting shaves weeks off your life. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, is that what happened to Barr? Well, certainly that's what probably caused the end of his life was the using magic to keep the ship together. Oh, it's it certainly, certainly what, sped it up. Yeah, what what happens here at um at the end, you know, g- given that, you know, they f- directly fought in the war and his reference that I've spoken to my cleric there's right. nothing that can yeah. be done. It seems like that's sort of the cost. Yeah, it certainly does. that he has to bear, which if we go back to our original conversation about Marco being concerned about leaving Alana alone with her dad, but we also juxtapose that his mother seemed to be the more violent one. Well, this would be evidence, perhaps, that really uh, Barr perhaps was the much more dangerous and aggressive one when they were younger. Yeah. If he's the one who's dying at what is really a pretty young age. Yeah. In chapter 10, we watch Alana and Marco fall in love and bust out of the joint. Marco, his mom, and Isabel scare off some terrifying midwives and get the hell off of the giant egg right before it hatches into a terrifying three-eyed baby. They aren't safe, though. Gwendolyn and the Will show up, and in a stunningly short-sighted move, Gwendolyn fires a missile at them. It hits the giant baby instead. The giant baby busts the Will's ship up, and Lion Cat is sucked into space. Lion Cat! News! So this opens with Alana reading to Marco. Yes. So, so I think it's somewhat interesting to to speculate about kind of the timing of their meeting. So right. she meets him directly after having read this book. I mean, directly after right. having read, like, like a minute after having read this book. And then she's so desperate to share this book that she's going to share it with anybody. So she shares it with Marco while they're, you know, she's supposed to be watching him. 
it seems to me that she's highly suggestible at this stage for this exact thing to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's not just that she's read a book that she loves. It's the whole point of this book and the apparently now we can't make any sense of it. There's another snippet of it read here and it doesn't make any more sense than the first one did. No. <laughs> but but the subtext of the book, as it's explained to us, is the futility of the war between the wings and the horns and how there will never be a winner. And the only way out is to just stop fighting. Well, and, and that's what I mean. But, you know, she's so suggestible to this after having read this book because she seems to to get, although I don't know that she at this stage would maybe be able to articulate it as clearly, but she seems to get that that's what's being right. That that's what's going on in this book. So back on the giant egg, Marco and his mom get confronted by the midwives. Holy hell. That's creepy as heck, right? It's, it's very interesting to me. It's that uncanny Valley thing, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that you take one human feature and do something weird to it. And it's way more creepy than anything else you could imagine. Right. You know, think of the mouth of Sauron. Oh, yeah. In so Lord creepy. Lord of the Rings. Holy hell. That's what this reminds me of, mm-hmm. of the midwives. So the midwives look like old crone witches, like any other three witches you've seen in any Greek mm-hmm. mythology, any sort of old fantasy books. Go see the three witches, and they stand over the... Except their faces are upside down. Mm-hmm. And that singular fact makes them so creepy. Mm-hmm. And again, the world building here is so interesting that just these strange little details are put in this this planet that's actually an egg that has a thing called a time suck inside of it um, that is somewhat plot relevant, but you know, um, but really, it's just kind of a throwaway, like a side thing that happens. But it's just so interesting and unique. And I love Isabel showing mm. up here and um, scaring off the midwives. Isabel might be my favorite character in the book. <laughs> and then she says, just so you know, this is the third worst babysitting gig I've ever had. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Getting abandoned on a giant time suck egg in the middle of space. I feel like, per, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I don't want to come across as overly harsh. I feel like Marco and Alana have not really thought this relationship through. <laughs> they are definitely still figuring things out as they go. Yeah, I think so. And that so the time suck is pretty cool and weird. And the Will knows what it is when he, he shows up. So he shows up to where... Um, Slave girl says that the rings are, they don't see anything because the, the plant ship is not visible. They can't see anything on radar. They can't see the, anything yeah. on radar, but they do see this time suck. The will is like, oh my gosh, that's this thing is bad news. We got to get the hell it, away. Take down an entire armada. Gwen is it's like an energy vampire. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Get away. Gwen instead decides to fire a missile. That's my yeah. boyfriend on that tree. <laughs> and 
And uh, yeah, that doesn't go well. But I love the scene that follows after this where, where okay, there's a missile heading for them and Clara and Aunt and Alana give conflicting orders. So Clara says, yeah. you know, run away. And Alana says, no, head for it straight for the missile. And yeah, our yeah. plan is if they can get within the blast radius fast enough, it won't detonate um, and risk blowing up, you know, their his own ship. And Barr speaks up in Alana's favor and says, trust her. She knows what she's doing. Yeah. So that's just kind of a cool thing to see. And Clara says, you want to ram a missile with a plant? <laughs> but she was right. She was. And then so we end on what is a really, really sad scene. The Will ship gets torn apart because of Gwendolyn's stupidity. Mm-hmm. A hole gets torn into it and Lion Cat gets sucked out into the void of space. I have never cared so much for a cat in my I life. <laughs> a cat I just saw eating the face of somebody. A, a, a speaking character that only says one word. I mean. <laughs> Listen, it's I don't have anything against cats. I just think that they would eat all of us if they could only find a way to overcome our technical superiority. I don't think you're wrong there. But I'm still sad when Lion Cat gets sucked out into space. Oh, yes. I was very sad. And I just, I, again, I think it's so cool that we've got these big kind of overarching themes dealing with the futility of war and all of that, but also these smaller human messages about relationships and the ripples that they make when they begin and end. And that's kind of what the narrator is talking about when Lion Cat is sucked out. Yeah. Thankfully, we can roll right into chapter 11 and see what happens. It's so sad that Lion Cat is dead now. I really didn't expect it to end that way. Let's talk about chapter 11. Chapter 11. We flash back to when Marco and Alana conceived Hazel. The Will manages to save Lion Cat, and Gwendolyn is able to get the ship away from the time suck. Alana, Marco, and company are also able to escape, but only with a great sacrifice. Marco is forced to burn the crash helmets that brought his parents onto the ship, and Barr gives his life to keep the ship from falling apart. This is a big so, chapter. It is. So we start off... Um, with Alana and Marco conceiving Hazel. We start off with Alana gripping his horns. <laughs> um, and and then they have a discussion about how they don't want to have children or how it would be really stupid to have children. And Alana says, a child isn't a symbol. It's a child. It needs applesauce and, and play pens and an ass load of other things we can't provide while we're on the goddamn lamb. And Marco says, just to be clear, your exact words to me were, please shoot it in my twat. <laughs> yep. That was pretty funny. It's pretty funny. <laughs> She's just like, ugh. <laughs> <sighs> I know. <laughs> So then the will saves Lion Cat, and we all breathe a sigh of relief. Whew. And uh, fair to say, the will is not real happy with Gwendolyn. I think that is fair to say. Also, that Lansdow. Right? 
a laser lance pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So this is a very, very powerful chapter. There's a lot of sort of action things going on. Not a ton of notes. But after we rescue Lion Cat, we, we learn a little bit more about the ship that they're on mm-hmm. and how the ship, this you know magical flying plant, mm-hmm. really it operates and it's powered by magic. Right. Now, not specifically that it is a magical ship. That's not what I mean by powered by magic. I mean it consumes magic right. for fuel. So they realize they need to get away from this uh, baby, don't we all? I mean, if you see them <laughs> run, that's why they call them a time suck. And the only way to- Oh, I just get that the time suck is a baby. Right? It's a baby. It's a little on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, to get away, they need all this extra speed, so- Marco takes another family heirloom and tosses it into the fire to burn the magic so that they can get away. And So one- we know these crash helmets that brought Clara and Barr to the ship are very powerful magic. They mentioned that they sold their house just to get a pair of them. Yeah. So this is enough to kind of boost the ship's power, but the ship is not meant to withstand that much energy and it starts to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And so in order to attempt to hold it all together, our super powerful magical seamstress bar uses his incredible ability and weaves this magic throughout, wraps the hull in it so that it does not break apart through the big burst of speed that they get. And they manage to escape. And this scene has so much emotional impact, really just kind of packed into a few frames. We have Barr beginning this, doing doing this magic. Marco and Clara are downstairs in the engine room trying to stoke the fire. And Alana says, don't, you can't do this. You know, you your heart. And he says, my heart is down in the engine room. And as he collapses... You know, they're safe now. He collapses and he looks up and he just meets Hazel's eyes. And he says something like, look at those peepers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so like, oh, it just, yeah, it's just so well drawn. It's a beautiful scene. It's very emotional. And then when Marco comes up, Marco and Clara come up and Marco's face when he sees his father and it flashes to a memory another memory of his childhood. And again, it's not in English. It's just in their language. So you, it makes you look at their faces to figure out the context of what's going on. You're so goddamn smart. <laughs> but like not being able to read the words, it really just, it makes, it, it packs an emotional punch that I don't think it would have otherwise. If you don't choke up reading these couple of pages, Mm -hmm. you and Ted Bundy ain't got a soul. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's really, really emotional. Yeah, that that flashback, it's it's also sort of, it's a somewhat archetypical scene Mm 
mm-hmm. in that it's the it's the scene you see in a lot of movies and things where you know it's the it's a a father it's a typical kind of exploring fatherhood scene where like the kid is learning to ride a bike without training wheels mm-hmm. you know and they fall down and the dad's like no we mm-hmm. get back up and we do it again you mm-hmm. know and we keep moving forward mm-hmm. and but it's in this alien context mm-hmm. you know and yet despite the fact that it's a grasshopper a giant mm-hmm. grasshopper instead of a bike and despite the fact that as you said we can't understand any of the words that are being said mm-hmm. we still understand exactly what's happening here and it's something we can all re- it's something most of us can relate to right we can all kind of connect to the that feeling and when that flashback ends it's just a frame of marco's face looking devastated well it's the 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 artful thing the, i mean there's so many artful things but it begins with Marco's face right when he recognizes that his dad is dead. Mm -hmm. And then the next frame is Marco's face as a child. Mm -hmm. And then it goes to the whole scene. The last frame of the flashback is Marco's face as a child. And then again, Marco's face back in the present, realizing his dad is dead. Mm -hmm. It's fucking magnificent. It's devastating. It's devastating. Yeah. Yeah. That's my favorite part. Of the series so far. Mm -hmm. We just need a minute. (laughs) (laughs) You have anything else for that chapter? No, no. How could you have anything else for that (laughs) chapter? So chapter 12. Prince Robot is having a graphic nightmare. He's woken by a call from Agent Gale who's as pleasant as ever. He reminds the prince what the stakes of his mission are, as if he needed the reminder. Prince Robot lands on Quietus, in search of the author of Alana's favorite book, D. Oswald Heist. After a terse interaction, Robot shoots Heist in the leg, and then settles down to wait for Marco and Alana to show up. He has no idea that they are already hiding in the attic. So, I don't know if maybe I'm just... I'm just a pervert or what, but it seems to me like there's some subtle sexual undertones in this opening couple of frames. So y'all can't see this, but Chad is holding up the opening frame and there is definitely a very graphic depiction of, of oral sex right on this page. So this one is not subtle. I'll give you this one. (laughs) Eating the mango was a bit of a stretch, but this, you know. I just, I don't know where they're going with these things. <laughs> so, um, I looked at it closely. All right. What I, I'll be interested to see if this has any relevance or not, but all the scenes that he is seeing are scenes of homosexual sex. Mm-hmm. So... I'll be interested to see. I mean, that was an, an artistic choice done for a reason. Mm-hmm. I just don't know what reason. Mm-hmm. I'll be interested to see if and how that comes back with Prince Robot. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you just have to read and find out. I mean, I have some thoughts about it, mm-hmm. but I would rather wait and see. But but again, that artistic choice is there for a reason. So I'm curious to see what it is. The robots are such an interesting they species are. because the idea of like your thoughts being able to be shown on a you know on your face like that and you're going to get the idea that they the robots learn at a young age to not show everything they're thinking but you know on these scenes that we see of robot he's when when these flashes come up he's either when he's gravely wounded or in great distress mm-hmm. or anger or, or something, anger yeah. or whatever that they'll, he'll let something slip and it's just such an interesting concept well the other thing that's interesting from a world building standpoint about the robots in general is that with the uh, land phalians mm-hmm. they're all these you know w- you know the wings right they're the winged creatures they're winged humans and of course the wreaths the moonies are essentially horned humans mm-hmm. right but the robots are sort of like they're sort of a wild card in that you know in that the ruling class of the landphalians mm-hmm. are robots where it, that's just sort of an interesting thing that it's you know it's wings versus horns but but there's a little bit of a difference on the side of the wings in that the the royal family, the blue bloods are not blood I, creatures at all. I don't think that the that the robots are the ruling class of the Landfallians. I think they're it's more like an alliance. Mm, okay, it's like France and England teaming up. That doesn't mean that the English queen is the queen of the French. The Do you Allied know what Army. I'm saying? Okay. All it's right. more that the the war has spread out and then the allies in those wars have found just as much you know as the war has continued mm-hmm. that um now that the robots have just as much reason to hate you know the wreath side as as the landfallians did but they're not one you know mm-hmm. they're it's not it's not the same government okay gotcha i i would not have uh, expected that or did not did not understand that. You have to admit the blue blood metaphor and something that is not uh, even human. Yep. Is yep. is pretty interesting. Also, Prince Robot 4 is fucking coming unhinged. He's a hot mess. He is a hot mess. And then um who is it? Gale is the right. the agent. This guy is a grade A peckerwood. <laughs> I haven't heard someone say that in a long time. <laughs> he calls That's a, hilarious. He calls him up when he's sleeping, and he's like, "What are you doing sleeping?" Uh huh. You know, and I'm like, "What? What do you expect him to go an entire mission mm-hmm. and not sleep? Mm-hmm. Like what?" And then I'm like, "Oh, he's a robot." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, I forgot. I forgot he's a robot. Okay, never mind. So, yeah, Prince Robot is definitely coming unhinged, and he unleashes on the tiny town of Quietus. Oh, yes. So let's literally called Quietus. Let's talk about the town of Quietus. So Prince Robot 4 lands on this, this little planet, and the first thing he sees is 
Is that a a seal walking a walrus? It absolutely is a seal walking a walrus. It's freaking adorable. Uh, the seal in orange overalls is one of the the best things I've ever seen in my life. Absolutely, it's so cute. And it, it just gives us a sense of what this planet is and Quietus aptly name. Uh, it, it would be fair to say that the images we see would lead you to believe that it is incredibly sparsely populated. Yes. Extremely remote. Like it might just be Heist and the walrus and the seal. And that's it. <laughs> Although the seal tells Prince Robot that sometimes the ladies visit Mr. Heist. And he likes it when they bring brown bottles. Yeah. <laughs> so up until now, there's been some hints about this book and this author. And Alana says that uh, Heist is the, the smartest person in the universe. Prince Robot shows up and he is not what you'd expect. <laughs> he's, I, I'm pretty sure he's not say. wearing pants, which is a valid life choice, you know. Well, he w- again, he lives on a planet with nobody. He is wearing pants, but oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I feel like his spirit is not wearing pants. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. And uh, when when he he says, "Oh, come on in," I guess you want your book signed. And then when Prince Robot brings up a nighttime smoke, he says, "Oh, you're here about that piece of crap." Um, I just turned that in for a paycheck because I didn't want to lose my house, you know, and Prince Robot isn't buying it. He's like, no, I, I get what your secret agenda is. Kind of quickly, it turns to, yeah, you could tell that Heist, there is more to him than just a uh, drunk, washed up author. You know, he really does have this kind of these pacifist beliefs. And then he gets shot in the leg. Um, yeah, this is this is where Robot starts to become real unhinged. We find out that Oswald's son was a, I guess, a young officer in mm-hmm. the Landfalian army. Yeah. And, you know, Robot says to him, this is where it starts to, the emotions start to come out, mm-hmm. you know, because to this point, it's just all posturing and mm-hmm. feeling each other out. And, and Robot says, oh, I'm, I'm sorry he died. What battle did he die in? And Oswald says, I didn't say he died in battle. Mm-hmm. He killed himself after he came home mm-hmm. because of the nightmares. I bet you have the nightmares too. And that's where we start to get a sense that, mm-hmm. okay, there, there is more going on. So not only does Robot shoot him in the leg, but he walks up to him when he's injured and gives him a um, a pen and says, jab it, jab it in my neck, Mm -hmm. jab it in my neck or I blow your brains out. And then we really get to see sort of the pacifist move from Oswald as he just throws the pen away. Mm -hmm. And uh, Robot's like, fine, I'm going to wait here because I have a feeling your friends are going to arrive. And that's when we close the entire trade paperback, finding out the friends have already arrived. They've been waiting upstairs listening to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a damn clue what happens from here. Are you excited? I am very to excited the next to read one? book three. I, we've had it here the whole time, and I feel like I've been waiting for it to be written. Right? But you just had to wait. 
<laughs> but I just had to wait. So we could hear your predictions. So good, so good stuff so far. Are you ready for listener interactions? Yes, let's do it. So we actually have an interaction from a listener on Twitter who says, awesome. uh, Fat Mad Dad. And this is a actually a question about Stormlight Archive. But lay it on us. Given that we don't have as many folks listening, we don't have as many interactions on Twitter, I'm going to go ahead and ask it. It says, which character from Stormlight Archive would you want to transplant to Temerant? Oh. And why is it the Lopin? <laughs> Absolutely. I would love to see the Lopin kick it with Bast. Right? <laughs> that would definitely be pretty awesome. I had never thought of that before, but now I'm thinking about it. I think I might want to put Dalinar there. Mm. Because you need somebody with some political bravery who's like, fuck all y'all. I'm finding out what the truth is. Right? Which he would cut right through. You, He'd be behind yeah. that door in the library in 18 seconds. Right? Yeah, you lack that in in those books. Anyway, getting getting back to Saga. So the rest of our questions will actually be about the topic here at hand. Or other topics. Or potentially other topics. So Ian James Crone says, so who had the badass in-laws? Whose in-laws are the most badass? Did we tell a story? Hmm? Did we tell a, a, an, in, an in-law story on a previous podcast? No, I don't think we did. I think it's just the question of, you know, looking at oh, Alana's in-laws. Yes. And Ian wants to know which of our sets of in-laws are the most badass. I mean, I think they're both badass in different ways. I think that's a very safe way of putting that. <laughs> Theogram Brown asks, can either of you neatly fold a fitted sheet? Oh, I can rock the fitted sheet fold. You know I can. I can unfold them like a goddamn champ. It's true. I fold, he puts them on. <laughs> <laughs> we balance each other that way. We do. I he's, a, he's an introvert with very good people skills, social skills. I'm an extrovert with terrible social skills. <laughs> Yin yang, that's how it works, people. I, I don't know that that's accurate. But I fold the sheets, he sleeps on the sheets. You know, it works for us. <laughs> Brian McClure says, best quote for this section. There's really only one candidate. Ain't a sword. Oh. It's a lance. Oh, I was- What's yours? I was going for uh, your exact words to me were- <laughs> Shoot it in my twat. That's a good one, too. <laughs> Susan King says, I haven't read Saga, but I will listen just because you all put a smile on my face. Thank Aww. you very much. Uh, Brian McClure says, favorite character so far? Uh, Lion Cat. Good. Uh, I, I'm going to say Isabel. Yes. Yeah. But if I didn't say Isabel, I would have said Lion Cat. So. Or Fard. <laughs> <laughs> 18-inch penis. Brian McClure also says predictions for future volumes. We'll get to that at we'll the get end. That, yeah, yeah. Um, he also says magic versus technology is an uncommon theme in speculative fiction. The first example that comes to my mind is David Weber, Hell, Hell's Gate, 
slash multiverse. Do you know of any books, comics with a similar magic versus technology theme? The the one that springs to my mind most readily is the Powder Mage series that I've just read and is excellent. And so it's a magical, it's a fantasy world set in like a sort of a revolutionary war era after the invention of gunpowder. And the pre- have I already talked about this to you? To me, but not on the podcast, oh, okay. so. Well, then it doesn't count. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But the premise is that you had this this fantasy world with a very traditional old school magic system. And then when gunpowder was invented, these new mages found that they could use gunpowder to do new kinds of magic. And they were a threat to the old system. So it became this very like new versus old um, progress versus tradition kind of thing. And um, it's a very interesting world. Great characters. I love the Powder Mage series. I liked it the first time I saw it when it was called Star Wars. I I don't even know what to say to that statement. You shouldn't because it's completely bullshit from out of left field. <laughs> I mean, okay. it's only there to disarm you. As long as you can acknowledge that. Oh, we're I good. can. I can. <laughs> Daryl Mansell says, what's your favorite art from this volume? I mean, I think we talked about a couple of our favorite frames. Um, definitely uh, Barr's death and the flashback that follows it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. To me, that's that's hands down the best artwork in this comic so far. The, the frame with Lion Cat in space is also mm-hmm. quite powerful. Mm-hmm. I have to say, and, and I... Don't think I'm overstating this. I think Fiona Staples is my favorite comic book artist. I think I might agree with you. Really, really fantastic. I mean, I know that we don't have quite the same breadth of knowledge of comics as as a lot of other folks out there do. uh, But we also read a lot of comics in general. And I can think of several other comic books that also you know have really amazing art but i can't think of any that are as consistently outstanding i know there are some that just from a stylistic standpoint mm-hmm. i really really like mm-hmm. but i but i think fiona staples is is consist is my number one it's fantastic Brian McClure also asked, how does your enjoyment of volume one compare to volume two of Saga? I mean, I think volume two, I mean, I think the series um, volume two is is better, uh, even just because it it continues to build in such a satisfying way upon vil- volume one. Yeah, I think y- because you're deeper into the characters and you've established a little bit more of them, the emotional stakes of what's going on, particularly with marco's parents and you you get the whole meeting of them what happens with oswald uh, you get a better sense of just how completely off his rocker robot is mm-hmm. so i think all those things sort of give you a, a little bit of a deeper emotional investment in mm-hmm. it so to me yeah it, volume two definitely better than volume one mm-hmm 
Are you ready for some predictions? Yes, I am. All right, I have a couple of predictions here. So my first prediction is, Isabel will create a terrifying illusion in an attempt to scare off Robot. Okay. I think there's going to be some sort of betrayal between Alana and Marco. Or fear of a betrayal. Maybe Not that they'll necessarily betray each other, mm-hmm. but that the concern uh, about that is going to be a point of conflict in the future. Mm-hmm. This, this might win the tinfoil award, at least for the night. I think Marco and Alana's meeting... The timing of it, right after her reading A Nighttime Smoke, I don't think it's coincidental. Mm. I think it might have been a plant or orchestrated somehow Mm. by somebody or something. That's pretty tinfoil. It's it's Reynolds rap head to toe, baby. All right. Do you have anything else? I do not have anything else. Well, this was a fun episode. It Our was. next episode is going to be episode 100, a celebration of all things Duke and Duchess, all things Kingkiller, all things Balticon, all of our friends, all of our podcast family. We're very excited about it. The recording of our live from Balticon Kingkiller Theory Cast with special guest Daryl Mansell from paprika and where can they find us they can find us on the duke and duchess podcast.com did i tell you i almost deleted episode 100 don't tell them that they don't need to know what kind of ramshackle organization this is (laughs) i didn't i mean i did delete it i just recovered it they can find us on facebook at the duke and duchess if you haven't joined our facebook group page what are you doing with your life are you even doing come and join us at the d and d group you can also find us on all of the social media at the Duke and Duchess podcast. That's Instagram, Reddit, and Goodreads. I'm trying to get a little bit more active on Reddit. Don't hold me to it, but I'm trying. And that is it for us. We will see you next time in episode 100. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.